In the autumn of 1950, a week after a strange fog had settled over the city of San Francisco, 11 people showed up at the Stanford University Hospital with a strange, alarming, and slightly gross complaint. Their urine had turned bright red. Doctors performed the usual tests and examinations and were baffled when they discovered that the 11 people had had their systems colonized by a bacteria with the very pretty name of Serratia marcescens, which is distinctive for its bright red coloration and for the fact that there had never been a recorded case of it infecting a human being before those 11 people showed up in the emergency room. This odd development may have confused the local doctors, who couldn't understand how this rare and unusual bacteria had produced all of these sudden infections in the city. But the American federal government wasn't confused at all. Because as it turns out, the strange fog that had settled over San Francisco in September of 1950, and the red bacteria that was taking over people's urinary tracts, were part of a secret germ experiment that was being run on the people of San Francisco without their knowledge or consent. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today from across the bunker is the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> Toronto's own cryptid, Dr. Lee Kunla. <laughs> what a lovely intro. Thank you. And hello, everyone. And we're talking about something that in a way is timely and in a way I'm a little nervous talking about it because we're in the middle of a pandemic, a biological pandemic, and what we're going to be talking about today is basically the, the concept of the bioweapon. Right. Just as a kind of um, public safety warning, we are not suggesting at all that the COVID outbreak is a biological weapon or has anything directly to do with this podcast. And in fact, I would go further to say that by looking at the history, as we do so often, by looking at the history of these conspiracies and looking at what actually went down, I think you can see some of the real problems with both the idea of biological weapons and their execution. Yeah, I agree. I think this is an important topic to talk about right now, since everybody seems to be making claims about biological weapons. Uh, it, it seems like, a, in a way, a good time to actually look at an example of what happens when they are used. Okay. All right, so let's, let's go back, way back, even further back than we're normally going to go. Let's go back to 1155. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's true. We normally go like 200 years back. We're going almost 1,000 years back. Yeah, this is, even for us, this is far. All right. In 1155, Emperor Barbosa had a plan in order to inflict damage on his enemies, he took human bodies and threw them into wells in Italy in order to poison those wells. In 1346, skipping ahead a bit, the Mongols were attacking the walled city of Kaffa in the Crimean Peninsula. And one of the weapons they used was that they would take people who had died of the plague, put their bodies in a catapult, and then catapulted those bodies over the walls into the city but what was the point of this exercise? So these are walled cities. And during the time of a, an invasion, you, you lock down, nobody leaves the city. And so uh, by throwing a contaminated human body, in this case, into the city, you would potentially cause an outbreak. 
And we see this often in countries or cities that have been devastated in some way. New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina, the earthquake that happened in Haiti, you get the outbreak of disease. You know, once the sanitation systems break down and dead bodies are sort of lying around and just decomposing near water sources, things like that. So the idea of throwing contaminated corpses into a walled city during a siege would be to, yeah, it's it's biological warfare to get those people sick. Now, back then, of course, we didn't really understand the mechanisms of bacteria and viruses, but we did know that diseases were contagious. We did know that diseases were transferable. We weren't entirely sure how that was happening, but we knew that it was happening. Uh, a lot of doctors back then made arguments that perhaps there was something in the air having to do with smells. This is why you saw that during plagues, often people would do things like burn incense in an attempt to try to fight off the bad smells from causing the disease. When, of course, the bad smell was not the cause of the disease, it was more sort of correlated mm -hmm. because the bacteria was caused by the rotting flesh and the bad smells was caused by the rotting flesh. Welcome to the Uncover-Up. Right, yeah. <laughs> We're having some fun today. Mm -hmm. Bio-warfare is a very specific kind of warfare. It's when you use biological toxins and infectious organisms. Viruses, bacteria, fungi, and insects. There, uh, one of the most famous examples of this, and one of the most horrifying examples of this, takes place in 1763. In what is now considered North America, Lord Amherst of England approves a plan to distribute smallpox blankets to the indigenous people of the Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo. And we know this because we have his correspondence, and in his correspondence he writes, Could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of Indians? We must, on this occasion, use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. So what we're looking at here is basically attempted genocide using biological weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't know entirely how effective this particular plan was. We do know that smallpox was absolutely devastating to the indigenous people of the Americas, although how much of that was accidental, incidental contact with the Europeans and how much was a, a deliberate strategy, that's still being debated amongst historians. But there's no denying the horrifying outcome. And there's also no de denying the fact that clearly Lord Amherst had the idea and the plan and wanted to use this disease to try to reduce the population of indigenous people. Yeah, that's pretty shocking. Uh, to your point, I, I, there was contamination of European uh, settler germs that, that infected a huge amount of indigenous peoples. But the fact that even in principle, that this would be used intentionally to commit genocide is is yeah it's that's a pretty horrific statement and goes to show just sort of the devastating nature of this kind of uh biological warfare program you know if you don't have immunity to these things it really would wipe out everybody that it comes in contact with there's no stopping this once you let this go yeah it's not a targeted weapon you yeah. can't use this to uh, target specific soldiers, for example, what you're doing is you're unleashing something into the ecology, which then will indiscriminately just wipe out men, women, children, everybody. Now, why were the Europeans themselves not worried about contracting this? Well, they had already been exposed to it. It was a European disease. And so people who had come from Europe did have more of, I mean, they, they still were worried about getting smallpox, 
but if you were coming from Europe, there was already a chance that you had encountered this disease before and perhaps had mm -hmm. built up some immunity, I whereas see. the indigenous people of the Americas had never experienced this disease before and had no immunity to it. I should point out that here in Toronto, where we're recording the uncover-up, there is a street named after Lord Amherst, and I suggest that perhaps after this podcast, we start some kind of letter-writing campaign to have that street changed. Yeah. Um, that must already be happening. Uh, Somebody who, must have gotten on that. I hope so. Yeah, we need to, that's... We'll we gotta, follow up on that. Yeah. So speaking of uh, disease and horror, in 1864, there was a Confederate doctor named Luke Blackburn, and this was basically just after the Civil War, but apparently this guy was still holding a bit of a grudge. Uh, so what he was doing is he deliberately, and this is a doctor, again, who are supposed to, you know, do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath, all that. So this was a doctor. He deliberately gathers clothes from uh, victims of yellow fever to donate to Union troops in the hopes that then they would all contract the, the yellow fever and die. As it turns out, you can't get yellow fever that way, but he didn't know that. So this was, again, an attempt at using biological right. weapons. Right. Then, of course... Uh, we had the horrors of World War I. We had all sorts of brand new and exciting weapons in World War I, all sorts of brand new ways to turn groups of living people into groups of corpses. But biological weapons, they weren't really employed. Instead, we saw chemical weapons, things like uh, mustard gas. As horrifying as chemical weapons are, as absolutely terrifying as they are to experience, what are some of the key differences between using a chemical weapon and using a biological weapon? So, and I like the way you had put this earlier, chemical weapons decrease in, in effectiveness as time goes on. So you spray an area with an agent that will kill people, mustard gas, Agent Orange comes later, and it is devastating. And it is, again, indiscriminate uh, between soldiers and civilians, young and old. But... After a certain given period of time, maybe with some rainfall, maybe with some wind, that agent will dissipate and it will become less of a problem. Whereas you can get a sufficient number of people infected with a communicable disease, that could grow exponentially. There's no end to the kind of devastation that that could cause. I think that's one of the key differences between the two. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting because we've used this sort of analogy of viral spread so often when we're talking about information or yeah, disinformation. We, we've often compared them to viruses. And now we're actually talking about physical, biological viruses. So it seems weirdly familiar to us. That's this, right. This seems like ground that we've trod upon before yes. us, except normally we're talking about the spread of ideas. So after the horrors of World War I, there was an attempt to try to prevent those sort of things from happening again. Obviously unsuccessful. The Geneva Protocol uh, in 1925, for example, prohibited the use of chemical and biological weapons. But once World War II rolls around, we see a lot of the sort of the combatants in World War II trying to find any kind of edge that they can. And one of those edges was, of course, use of biological weapons. And that's not surprising because in World War II, you had a lot of indiscriminate murder of civilians in cities. Right. You had... The, the bombing of London, you had the firebombing of Dresden, Dresden the yeah. constant bombing of Berlin, the incendiary bombs that were de deliberately designed to set fire to the wooden buildings of Tokyo. There was a lot of attempt to try to simply wipe out civilian population centers. And so it's not that surprising that 
there was a lot of investigation into biological weapons, particularly by the Japanese army. When they were occupying China, uh, one of the things that they did was they poisoned over a thousand wells, not just to eliminate the local population, but also as a scientific experiment to study the effects of cholera and typhus. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of this was done by a specific Japanese army unit called Unit 731. And the stuff that this particular unit got up to, I think we'll probably do an entire episode on them because uh, we don't have time to get into it now. But it was, it was absolutely horrifying. And it was also something that was not prosecuted after the war. Because what the American government did was, rather than prosecute the members of Unit 731, what do you think the American government did with those, with those mad doctors who had been conducting these terrible experiments? I am thinking of Project Paperclip, which was this roundup of a lot of Nazi scientists by the Americans. Did they do the same with the Japanese scientists? The exact same thing with the Japanese scientists. Is it also called Project Paperclip, or was this a separate thing? This was a separate thing. Paperclip was specifically for the Nazi scientists that they wanted to bring right, okay. into America. So the, the Unit 731 scientists they wanted to bring into America was a different thing. I was just reading a, a State Department memo from 1947 that says, quote, The value to U.S. of Japanese bio-warfare data is of such importance to national security as to far outweigh the value accruing from war crimes prosecution. Right. So, again... Hey, we kind of want this data. We want this like research. These guys have committed like atrocious acts, horrifying acts against humanity. But but we need the research. We need the research. Right. So we'll bring them in. History is the worst. In 1942, just after the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, FDR authorizes America's first official biological weapons program. Uh, their their first official one. It was headed by George Merck of Merck Pharmaceuticals. Hmm. And uh, I have a quote from Merck here. Work in this field cannot be ignored in a time of peace. It must be continued on a sufficient scale to provide an adequate defense. So it's something that we see over and over again, this kind of early version of Cold War logic. Yeah. The other side is going to do this. So we better do it So first. we better do it. Yeah. It, it might be something unthinkable. It might be something inhuman. It might be something wildly immoral. But if they're doing it, we're doing it. Right. And then over there, that exact same logic causes them to say, well, this is unthinkable and immoral. Right. There's if, a biological weapons gap. We better get yeah. researching. If they're doing it, then we should do it. And so then you have two sides basically saying, this is too horrifying to even think about doing. However, they're going to do it, so, so we're going to we do, do it. So we should do it. Oh, boy. And so in 1943, here's, here's a name that's going to be familiar to you. In 1943... Construction is completed and operations start at a place called Fort Detrick. Hey! So where's Fort Detrick come up before? It's where Olsen worked. Yeah, it's where, <laughs> it's where, it's where Dr. Olsen worked. All uh, Frank that... Olsen yep. of the famous LSD, uh, he suddenly, you know, is found dead, having fallen slash been thrown out of a New York yep. hotel. Long story short... This man is involved in CIA experimental sciences around uh, chemical weapons. Yep. So Fort Detrick, I mean, it's come up in our MKUltra episode. It came up in our Frank Olson episode. Fort Detrick is a pretty shifty, shady place where the American government did at that time get up to some pretty shifty, shady stuff. So the Americans start ramping up their bioweapons. 
Interestingly, the Nazis were not that committed to bioweapons. I mean, clearly they used a lot of chemical weapons against civilians. Right. I mean, they were, it's sort of one of their things that they're most known for. But as far as bioweapons go, they didn't seem to uh, employ that. Himmler had uh, ordered research into weaponizing mosquitoes towards the end of the war, and one of the uh, doctors, one of the Nazi doctors that was working on this ep- this effort to weaponize mosquitoes was a guy called Dr. Eric Traub, and he was also one of the doctors that was brought over during Paperclip mm-hmm. and then sent to an institution in the States called Plum Island, where they got up to some other shenanigans that we'll talk about in another podcast. In the 1980s, apartheid-era South Africa, uh, the government there had something called Project Coast, which included weaponizing anthrax, snake venom, pheromones, and MDMA for the purposes of using against their own population. Wow. I did not know that at all. Like, none of this makes anybody happier to learn. No. no, Nobody comes out on top with this kind of reference. No. No, it's horrifying. It starts to wear on you, this kind of research, as far as some of the things... Again, it's this thing that we keep bumping into, the immense intelligence of the human being. Right. To be able to figure this stuff out. Right. Versus the immense lack of wisdom of the human being to avoid saying, wait, guys, wouldn't the world be better if none of us did this research? Because... As we've talked about, the nature of bioweapons, they're, they're difficult to control or impossible to control in a battlefield environment, in the chaos, and the wind. Like, you don't know which direction these things are blowing. They're hard to target. They're difficult to immediately recognize in the natural environment, so early warning is almost impossible. But here's the thing. So you'd wonder, like, why would any government be interested in a kind of warfare that is so volatile, that is so hard to predict, that is so by its nature destructive, like randomly destructive. And I think I figured out why. Because in a UN panel in 1969, experts testified the following. For a large-scale operation against a civilian population, casualties might cost about $2,000 per square kilometer with conventional weapons, $800 with nuclear weapons, $600 with nerve gas weapons, and $1 with biological weapons. Huh. So are we talking about the effectiveness of the weapon? Yeah, and the cost. Like, to, to murder a square kilometer of civilians with explosives, that might run you $2,000. Right, I see. To do it with nuclear weapons, it's still going to run you about 800 because right. nuclear weapons, of course, destroy so much. Yeah. With uh, nerve gas weapons, 600 bucks, But to use biological weapons to wipe out a kilometer of humans... It's yeah, a buck. That's, that's, that's a lot cheaper than the rest of it. Now, another advantage, quote unquote, that occurs to me is that it leaves, unlike the other weapons, it leaves the infrastructure intact. Yep. So if you, if you were to factor in, okay, so you destroy a population or a large part of it with these more conventional weapons here, even nuclear weapons, but you're left with a burning rubble. Well, yeah. Sometimes pe- radioactive. Right, the people are gone, but okay, now what? Uh, whereas if you were able to just walk into that infrastructure and all you have there is everything that was there except the people, that's like getting all these new cities for your... I mean, that's ex- expensive stuff, right? That's very valuable. Uh, I could see the appeal to it. Isn't it amazing and terrifying that once you put yourself in that Cold War mindset, these like unexplainable things suddenly become clear? It makes a lot of sense. It's it, within a within a kind of 
crazy world. Yeah. So, yeah, there is no, as you said earlier, there's no wisdom here, but there is a logic to it. Yeah, there's some spreadsheets and stuff. (laughs) Well, and as we get closer to your intro and the actual operation that we're talking about, I was thinking about that too. And I was like, there is a certain logic to this. If you... If you're already in a world in which biological warfare is a possibility, a possibility that not just your government, but other governments are figuring out, and as your history shows, one that's been going on for quite a while, it's something you might want to research, and the effects of which you would want to know about. What does this mean? I mean, when when the Americans get into nuclear weapons, they start like testing their weapons, right? Makes sense. I mean, you got to know what, what the consequences of something like this are going to be. And that's one of the defenses that the American government is going to use for their explanation as to why they are going down this dangerous road, is that they need to see if America is vulnerable to this sort of attack. Right. Biological warfare? What do they expect me to do about it? It's not my headache. You are wrong. You had better find out the facts about biological warfare or BW. It can be aimed at you in your home or at work, at your food crops, your livestock. And so then how can you tell if America is vulnerable to this sort of attack? Well, you simulate this sort of attack. Yeah, but you you said simulate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the fatal flaw with the operation that we're talking about. It was, it was not simulation enough. Well, I mean, here's what happens. It's 1950. <laughs> Sorry to laugh in a biological warfare episode. But <laughs> well, I think it's, this... we need, we need a, the only way we get through some of this stuff is through extremely dark humor. Yeah. How can we protect ourselves from BW attacks? Keep yourself and your family clean. Don't help germs by making things easy for them. 1950, Operation Sea Spray. Again, before I get into it, we have to comment on this fact. It's come up again and again. When you name a top secret operation, you're supposed to give it a random name that has nothing to do with the operation itself. Yeah, you know what? That rule is broken more often than it's kept. Constantly. You have an operation where you take a corpse and you plant false information on him and you throw him into the ocean to be discovered by your enemy and you call that mincemeat. <laughs> you have a situation where you have people being seduced in, in safe houses with one-way mirrors. Why not Operation Climax? Nobody Mid- would ever get yeah. anything from that name. Midnight Climax. And you now we have Operation Sea Spray. In a 1948 Committee on Biological Warfare report, The American government concluded that America was actually extremely vulnerable to bioweapon attack. But BW attacks can be made in spite of our health safety systems. Aerosols containing diseased germs could be used. These aerosols could be spread over large areas. Submarines could release aerosols near coastal cities. Specially designed germ-carrying bombs could be dropped. Enemy agents could contaminate the city water supply. And so for defensive purposes, it was suggested that some tests were carried out to see how effective these attacks would be and what could be done to mitigate them. Now, as soon as I read this, I I asked, and I'm sure you asked the same thing, 
Are they just saying that as cover to gather information on how to carry out their own offensive bioweapons attacks? Like, is this really about how to defend their their own cities from bioweapons, or is this just saying, we're doing this for defensive purposes, but really they were training to see if they could launch their own bioweapons attack on the Soviet Union? I mean, a question like that strikes me a bit like the Rorschach test. You know, those ink blots where it's so ambiguous that really what you discover is somebody's personality more than anything else. And so here, I am inclined to be much more pessimistic than maybe others. And I'd say, yes, definitely. Because the the research will tell you both, I think. Mm -hmm. The research will tell you both how vulnerable you are and also then, by extension, how to do it properly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I think this is certainly... An open question, I would fall on the side of saying they're interested at least knowing how it's done. I mean, there isn't any time that I know of where the Americans are looking at a weapon and say to themselves, you know what, it's too dangerous. Yeah, we won't use it. I don't think we're going to do this, Mm -hmm. right? That's never happened in my reading of American history ever, ever. And, you know, to be fair, I don't know if any government would say that. I will say this, though. Because this operation was was deliberately chosen to take place at a coastal city, that does seem to indicate that maybe it was about learning how to defend, because, of course, the Soviet Union isn't known for their coastal cities. Their populations are, are mostly far inland. So there is that. But if you look at the goals of this experiment, they are to gain data on how bacteria affected a population, highlight the vulnerability of the country's defense against such attacks. Okay. But the third one is to learn the offensive possibilities of attacking a seaport city with a biological warfare aerosol. Right. So then it's like, mm. Mm, yeah. But all is fair in love and war, right? I mean, it's it's the nuclear uh, age. It's it's the time of the Cold War. Existential threats are on the horizon. So I guess that's the logic. And once nuclear weapons are on the table, like you've put you've put worldwide annihilation on the table anyway. Right. And so at that point, it's like, hey, whatever. So, okay, hold on. You said this happens at a coastal city, but we haven't named it yet. This oh, is yes, that's right. San Francisco. Yeah, this takes place off the coast of San Francisco. The plan was to take a biological agent that allegedly wasn't harmful, but was easily identifiable. Uh, Serratia marcison seemed to fit the bill since it's, it's bright red. Like, it's actually quite pretty. They also pumped Bacillus globigii into the city at the same time. So San Francisco was chosen because it was a large city close to an ocean, and because the prevailing winds would blow the bioagent across the population. So for six days in September 1950, a U.S. Navy minesweeper sat off the coast and pumped Serratia marcissons and Bacillus globigii into the air out of giant hoses. And basically... They pumped so much of this stuff out, the clouds that were produced were two miles long. So the people of San Francisco were like, oh, that's an odd two-mile-long cloud that's in the air tonight. Wow. Now, it should be said that these uh, agents, these biological agents, were, in, were while striking, are supposed to be inert. They're not supposed, supposed to, to have any deleterious effects on the human body. Yeah, this was the simulated aspect of it. They were still pumping bacteria into the air, but a bacteria that allegedly wasn't going to hurt anybody. Right. This is like when you go 
and get one of those medical scans and they put like some radioactive dye in you. And the purpose is, you know, it shows stuff up on the scan, but it doesn't hurt you and then disappears. So this would be registerable. Sorry, that, I don't. That's a word, I think. Is it a word? Measurable would probably be better. Ah, there you go. It's measurable. It's noticeable, but it's not supposed to harm anybody. Yeah, and what they did was they they monitored the American government uh, using the U.S. Navy, monitored the air at 43 sites scattered across the area to detect the the presence of of these bacteria that they had sent off into the air. And what happened was they're like, wow, it's all over San Francisco. So big, big success, as well as Berkeley, Oakland, Sausalito, and a few other smaller communities. In fact, I was reading the report on this. The Navy scientist estimated that each of San Francisco's 800,000 residents had probably gotten a heavy dose of the bacteria. And so if it had been a weaponized bioagent, then yeah, that city would have been absolutely devastated. So right. it was a success? Yeah. Question mark? Yeah. Well, it's a success if what you're trying to do is infect a whole bunch of people with a biological agent. Yeah, it's possible. It's doable. Okay. So that's what this, that's what this was meant to show, mm-hmm. and it showed it. Yeah. However, <laughs> slightly afterwards, like not too long afterwards, only about a week, 11 patients showed up at Bay Area hospitals with severe urinary tract infections. After the bacteria in the urine was isolated, it was discovered to be, of course, serratia, which was strange since the hospital staff had never encountered a serratia infection before. And now they had almost a dozen in a few weeks. Right. So they were very worried that something very strange was going on. Because, and of, because of course, the doctors hadn't been notified of this well, test. I was just going to say, it, this is a secret test. So it's not as though the voluntary compliance of the civilian population had been gotten by, you know, hey, th- we're going to do this and we're going to, this is for the public good and there's no harm and all of that. N- none of that happened. It was in secret that this stuff was being sprayed about. Yeah. The people of San Francisco were being experimented on without their knowledge or their consent. Now, that is actually contravenes like international law, doesn't it? Yeah. And, what and what also, specific law? Well, um, the Nuremberg Code, which, which follows from the Nazi trials in, in Germany, where the, the remaining top living Nazis are uh, tried for war crimes... They have a, uh, a clause in there about uh, human experimentation. Of course, this goes back to things that happened, uh, among other places, in the concentration camps, where Mengele and other doctors would, would use human subjects and experiment on them. I really don't want to get into it because it's really horrific stuff. But just to We're give, already bummed out enough. I know, but just to give you a sense of the kind of stuff that they were doing, they would do experiments on hypothermia by basically freezing people to death and seeing how long it took or you know throwing throwing a naked person into uh, ice water and seeing how long they could thrash about before they died okay i'm not going to keep going you know you know which doctor did a lot of that stuff was uh, dr Alberta Strughold. okay and eventually he moved to the united states had a military base named after him and a prestigious science award right 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 because as you say the research is often worth more than any kind of ethical stance. Yeah. Um, but let me read you the first clause uh, under the Nuremberg Code. Um, this is under the title of Directors for Human Experimentation. The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. 
This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion, and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make, make an understanding and enlightened decision. Now, that's just the first, set, the first two sentences. I'm not going to keep reading. It's quite long. But already there, already there, we can see that the United States government has uh, completely gone against both the letter and the spirit of this clause of the Nuremberg Code on human experimentation. Yeah, in, in this example. Yeah. Uh, and also in yeah. the KLT. Uh, and, and many, many other yeah. examples. And in, Artichoke and Bluebird. Yes. What's different, I guess, here is that this is biological warfare as opposed to chemical, other types of warfare mm -hmm. or experimentation, I guess. Now, a quick aside, because as we're talking about this, again, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the time in which we are existing. I would not argue that the vaccine program is a violation of the Nuremberg Code. No. People have tried to make that argument, and I don't, I don't think it, it Well, fits. I think, again, it is an aside. This is not the core part of... But an what, important one, I think. Well, I think uh, uh, some of the major differences here are the fact that you are told about the vaccine. It doesn't just... It's not as though it's been put into the water as though that even were possible. Yeah, I would have an issue with that. Right. That would be a violation of the Nuremberg Code. Right, and you are not told it's in the water, it's been put in the water, and then everybody gets it, whether they're healthy or unhealthy, they can tolerate the vaccine or not. That's certainly not what's happening. Mm. But here in Project Sea Spray, as you said, every inhabitant of uh, San Francisco was infected. That would include children. Yeah, right. And Which, the elderly, and, and the people elderly. with compromised immune systems. But here, it, it, I'm going back to the code. It says that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent. Well, children don't have legal capacity to give consent. So already there, right? And again, with the vaccine, we're not vaccinating children, at least not under the age of 12. I mean, I could go on. Should I go on? I don't know. No, I think we've covered it. And also, we're informed as to what's in the vaccine. Yeah. It's all in the public. It's all and transparent. you don't actually have to take it. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, there are consequences for not taking it. Yes. You might not be able to go to restaurants and things. Sure, but you, you are still not forced to take it, whereas all these inhabitants of San Francisco, uh, September 1950, are all being subjected to this, whether they like it or not including one particular San Francisco resident named Edward Nevin. Now, Nevin was recovering from a prostate operation, and he was recovering well. He had gone home, uh, I think to a family member's home, actually, to kind of rest and, and to get better, when suddenly he became extremely ill. Mm. He was taken to the hospital, and he died. Mm. The doctors couldn't understand why his health had decreased so rapidly, so they performed an autopsy. The autopsy showed that Nevin's death had been caused by bacterial encarditis, inflammation of the heart caused by bacteria. In particular, when they opened up his heart, they found a bright red colony of bacteria in Nevin's wow. heart valves. Wow. So I, I clearly, we've, we've said this before for any listeners who um, have stuck with us for a while. I'm certainly not a medical doctor. 
my understanding and looking at this because the other patients who had the other 11 or was it 10 patients and then the 11th was the one who died um, who presented symptoms and went to hospital they had all somehow been uh, infected through the urinary tract Mm -hmm. i think right and then that's how it got into their bodies and then in this case it lodged itself in the patient's heart yeah now the doctors were baffled by this but they they couldn't figure out i mean there was uh, uh there was a large report written by the doctors at the hospital because of course this was in addition to all of the other patients who had shown up the doctors were extremely concerned that something really weird was happening but they didn't know what it wasn't until 1976 when reporters at the san francisco chronicle uncovered files revealing the 1950 tests where and, sorry as an aside where did they find these files this always uh, um, uh, i i always love this uh, sleuthing stuff because we found often that we find files that have been misfiled or copies of them are in, in even though they're classified they show up somewhere where they shouldn't have been where were these files found well i mean this is really interesting and this is something that we've talked about before a bunch of times in the cold war the american government had a real f- around and find out energy going on and the 1950s and 60s that was the that was the around okay the 1970s that was the find out okay and so this was part of that kind of greater transparency that was occurring and also greater suspicion on the part of of journalists there was a lot of good journalism going on in the 1970s i mean think about some of the american secret things that were uncovered in the 70s yeah i mean that that was like a turning point we have watergate uh, we have MK Ultra, COINTELPRO. Those are the big highlight ones. But... Yeah, to the point where something like this one was was sort of unnoticed. This was right. one of the, even though it was a massive <laughs> experiment on all of the people in San Francisco, they're like, well, and also that happened. So one of the people who reads the, the newspaper stories, Edward Nevin III, and he realizes, wait, my grandfather died of this. He was killed by this bacteria used in the experiment, and so he sues the American government. The lawsuits forced the release of a redacted government file titled Special Report Number 142, which basically confirms all of the reporting that had already been done on the event. Based on the report, almost everyone in San Francisco would have been inhaling about 5,000 bacteria particles every minute during the test. I mean, they're small, but that's a lot of bacterial particles. Professor John Mills at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco discovered that the Bay Area had a rate of serratia infections that was about 10 times higher than other similar locations. So, in the trial, the government lawyer argued that despite tests that had been done in Fort Detrick in which people exposed to serratia had developed fevers and coughing, there was no evidence that it could be harmful to humans. Besides, They also argued the serratia that killed Edward Nevin was not the same serratia that the government had sprayed over San Francisco. Just a coincidence. (laughs) Right. Nobody's ever been infected by this or died of this before, but the time when it happened, definitely not our fault. It was just a coincidence. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the critical thinking skills that we always try to teach is that coincidences do happen. Yes. And there's a danger in saying that nothing's ever a coincidence. Yeah, that's true. But come on. (laughs) Like, let's not be ridiculous about this one. There's been no serratia infections, and then the entire city is sprayed with serratia, and then a guy dies of a serratia infection. Uh, The lawyer also called to the stands former bioweapons researcher Dr. Charles Phillips, who had worked at Fort Detrick. When the lawyer asked Phillips, 
If you were called on today, and you were still in charge and not retired, would you approve a spray of San Francisco with serratia marcissons? The doctor replied, I would. Huh. Another government bioweapons researcher named Dr. Oram Wolpert defended his actions by testifying that, I had a responsibility, high priority. If I had not carried out my responsibilities, they could have done a lot of other things. Put me in jail, I suppose. What does that excuse sound like? Well, yeah, oh God. I, okay, I don't know if this is what you were thinking of. What immediately comes to mind is Adolf Eichmann. That is what I was thinking of. Um, who's, uh, who was basically um, the, one of the people who organized the Holocaust, specifically the transportation of Jews uh, to the camps. And so he was in full knowledge of what was going on. See, after uh, the Second World War, a lot of Germans and especially a lot of Nazis maintained that they were ignorant of the death camps and what was happening. But this guy, Adolf Eichmann, clearly, clearly that's not the case for him. But his argument, he is found in Argentina. He is then brought to Israel. Um, it is a huge public event, his trial. And his basic argument there is, look, I was just following orders. And that is not deemed today to be an acceptable argument. If you know, even as a soldier, who is, you know, generally your job as a soldier is to follow orders and not question them, the defense that I was just following orders is not a legitimate uh, defense if you know that you are nonetheless breaking human uh, rights, like you're causing human rights to be violated. Now, the judge's verdict... In a way, it was the judge's verdict was almost that everybody was just following orders. Right. So it's fine. The experiment had been done as part of the, quote, discretionary function exception, end quote, which is to say it was part of national defense planning, so it wasn't vulnerable to lawsuits. I love how horror can be packaged in such bland bureaucratic terms that you, you don't notice the yeah. discretionary function exemption. Oh, it's just the discretionary function exemption. Oh, well, that's fine then. I mean, my eyes just glaze over when you say <laughs> right. those words. Like, I can't even pay attention anymore. Well, you're going to pay attention now because I know this has been very grim. And I know that there, it's sort of been, it's been one of our more unpleasant episodes. But I'm going to crank it up now. Oh, good. I'm going to crank it up. Am I going to like really open up the pipes <laughs> right now? Because now I'm going to talk about a couple Soviet examples. Okay. Oh, yeah, because we have this episode comes on the heels of uh, two episodes we did on the KGB. I kind of felt like we were balancing it out again by going back to the Americans and showing that they're up to no good. But, oh, here we go. Oh, no, we can, like, there's enough for everybody to share. Uh, all right. Okay, so I'm going to give you two examples. 1979, there was an accidental anthrax outbreak from a bioweapons factory in Sverdlovsk. And it was caused by uh, basically bureaucratic bungling. There was a clogged air filter, it was removed, but then they had a shift change, and it was removed in one shift change, and it wasn't replaced with the other shift change, uh, and ultimately... So this then you feels just... like a Soviet joke. How many Soviets does it take to replace an air filter? And so then what happened was, the, the factory just starts pumping out anthrax into oh, the world. Oh, no. So, oh, so this was that the purpose of this air filter was to prevent anthrax from spilling out into the community. Yep. That's an important air filter. That's a really important air filter. Then they had an anthrax outbreak. The Soviet government covered up the accident and blamed the outbreak on poisoned black market meat. 
Okay. But no, actually, it was a, it was a lab leak. But here's the here's the one. If you've stuck with us this long through this kind of unpleasant episode, like here's your reward. Uh, no, what's <laughs> what's the opposite of reward? Punishment. Here's your punishment. Oh boy, late 1980s. There was a Soviet doctor named Nikolai Ustinov, and he was working at a bioweapons lab in Western Siberia. That sentence alone. Yeah, you know nothing good will come of this. Yep. A bioweapons lab in Western Siberia. So because w- sorry, just as an, another aside, if you're going to hide something in the Soviet Union, you put it in Siberia. Yeah. Right. It's not getting out. So they're working on the Marburg virus, which is related to Ebola. Okay. So this is a bad, bad virus. So use the theater of the mind for a second. Mm-hmm. So imagine this lab, all of these Soviet scientists are working with this deadly, like extremely deadly virus, and Dr. Ustinov picks up a guinea pig, like an actual guinea pig, not a okay. human guinea pig, picks up a guinea pig to inject with the virus. Okay. His colleague misses the guinea pig, injects Dr. Ustinov with the needle. Huh. So at that point, from that moment, Dr. Ustinov is, he's doomed. Oh, dear. Like there is no way to recover from that. Okay. It took him two weeks to, to die. Very unpleasant death. Uh, if you know anything about Ebola... It's, it's too horrible even for us to talk about. Uh, his wife was brought in to say goodbye to him, but had to speak to him from another room, separated by glass partitions. Here's why I'm telling this story, though. After he died, his organs were removed, and it was discovered that the virus, the Marburg virus that had been accidentally injected into him, had mutated in his body and had become more virulent and more dangerous. So his colleagues harvested the new mutated virus from his corpse and dubbed it Variant U for Ustinov, which was then experimented on in order to produce even more deadly biological weapons. Well, that's a relief. I'm glad they handled that responsibly. (laughs) That's just the craziest story, one of the craziest stories we've ever come across. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh... Like harvesting, what do you even do with that? I don't know. I'm stunned. And I, I, I thought I was prepared for most things that come up in this podcast, but I, my eyes are very large right now. Yeah. So I guess my question is, how have we made it this far? Yeah. I, I asked that to myself a lot during the research phases for these episodes and then also after recording it. I don't know. I mean, dumb luck is really what it feels like. Well, at often this point. it was dumb luck, especially the nuclear stuff. Like yeah. we just could have gone one way and we went another way. Yeah. I this is this is a silly personal example, but I recently fell off a chair and broke two fingers. And amazingly, that's a good news story because as I uh I've been recounting to anybody who will listen, if I had fallen, so I was on a chair and, <laughs> and now I you're fell, telling it to everybody who listens to the everybody podcast. Everybody listening gets to hear this. I fell one way, I broke two fingers. If I had fallen the other way, I would have fallen out of a third story window, which was open. And I would have, you know, crashed onto an iron balcony three stories below. And I would have uh, got seriously, seriously injured or died. That's what like 20th century history feels like. It's like we luckily fell one way. We caused damage, but it could have been way, way worse. And I, what I worry about since we're, since we just started dark and we're going to end dark and we were dark in the middle right exactly there's just shades of darkness that's 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 how this podcast chromatically could be described but 
I, 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 I've been thinking to myself, basically what we have created is a big giant button that if somebody were to press it, everybody dies. And all that's happened so far is that nobody has pressed it yet. But I just feel like the problem is that we have that button. You know, like when you live in a society where that is an option, eventually, through bad luck, coincidence, or malice, somehow that button gets pushed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've done my job. <laughs>